the Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm Lee Johnson, and I'm joined, as usual, by my co-hosts, Rick Lee and Jason Reed. Today, we're going to be talking about attention and distraction. But before we get started, let's get everybody's drink orders and your rants or raves. Rick, what are you drinking, and what are you ranting or raving about this week? Oh, sorry. I was just looking at TikTok. (laughs) (laughs) Today, I will have a Kronbacher Pils. It's one of my favorite German beers. And today, I am raving about the writer and comedian Keaton Patty. He's written a book called I Forced a Bot to Write This Book, and the subtitle is AI Meets BS. (laughs) My sister and I are huge fans of Hallmark Christmas movies, which now you could see year-round, and he has a couple of fake scripts that he says a bot wrote for Hallmark Christmas movies where they are just hilarious. So I'm raving about Keaton Patty. Thank you for lifting me up. What about you, Jason? What are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about? I'm going to have a glass of Pinot Noir from Mary Edwards, which is from the Russian River in in California. And I'm going to rave about Little Free Libraries or LFLs. You know, they get a bad rap sometimes as being a place people just dump their junk books. But in my neighborhood, I've just been scoring with the little FLs. <laughs> I found the entire Broken Earth trilogy by N.K. Jemison. Subrave about that. Great set of books. I mean, when you walk a dog, you got to stop a lot anyways. And they give you a place to stop while the dog's sniffing. I can kind of check them out. And uh, I love seeing what people in my neighborhood are reading and keeping an eye on them. So what about you, Lee? What are you drinking? What are you ranting and or raving about? I think I'm just going to have a hot sake and warm myself up from the inside Today, I am actually ranting about the entire Harry Potter franchise. (laughs) So I think I've mentioned this before, but Harry Potter is one of those cultural phenomenons that I just completely missed out on up until very, very recently. I had never read any of the books. I had never seen any of the movies. I mean, I'm sure I had seen parts of the movies, but I did recently sit down to try to watch them. And yeah, I just don't get it. I don't get what the hoopla is about. This is not great filmmaking. It's not even great storytelling, but I suppose it was a generational thing. And, you know, it's, I'm just not that generation. <laughs> so I know we're talking about attention and distraction today, but Jason, how did you want us to think about that? Yeah, well, attention has become a kind of watchword of late. It is said by many that we're living in an attention economy, an age in which attention has become both a scarce resource and a source of wealth. Devices and apps do everything in their power to solicit our attention to keep us glued to our screens, turning minute scrolling and clicks into revenue. And because of this demand on our attention, distraction has become an ongoing problem. From the road to the classroom, we are worried that we're not truly paying attention Is it time to pay attention to attention, to reflect on how we perceive and what we perceive and why? What might it mean to reclaim our attention from distraction? Well, 
as is my habit, I'm going to ask a definitional question first. And I want to know, what is attention? Is it a faculty? Is it an activity? What is it, Jason? Well, we often use the phrase that we pay attention to something, which gives it already kind of an economic basis, which suggests that there's only so much attention we can pay that it's scarce. But there's also a sense in which we constantly talk about you know, multitasking, the idea that we can stretch out our attention. So I think it's odd that we use attention both in a way that reflects its fundamental finitude or scarcity, but also the sense that we can somehow stretch it out and pay attention to multiple things at once. Lee, I was thinking in your question, so you asked, is it a faculty or an activity? And so I've been trying to think, okay, what would the difference between those two be? And it seems like if it's a faculty, then it's something that we could either exercise or not, right? We could Mm -hmm. choose to pay attention or we could choose not to pay attention. And I'm not sure that's actually the case. Maybe it is. Maybe you disagree. But if it's an activity, then it's something that I'm doing or not doing and maybe even without my will being involved or choosing to do it. Like we also talk about like something caught my attention mm-hmm. and, and maybe in a sense of captured my attention. And that makes it seem like it's much less voluntary. So I don't know. What do you think? Is, is it a voluntary thing or not? I think that it can be voluntary. I think that it can be an activity of using our faculties in different ways. And so in that sense, I agree with you that it's probably not a faculty in the normal way that we think about faculties. But I don't think that something else capturing our attention means it's entirely involuntary. I mean, we still have to, quote unquote, pay attention to the things that are trying to capture our attentions. There are lots of things out there, especially now, that are at work capturing my attention that I can voluntarily not pay attention to. But I'm thinking like whenever we record a podcast and I'm in my normal podcasting setup, I have a window right in front of me. And every once in a while, birds will fly by. And that catches my attention away from you all, but it's not really a voluntary thing. You know, I notice it and suddenly I'm drawn there. And I don't think I have any choice about that. And so the reason I bring that up is because I'm wondering whether today we have a lot of a lot of birds flying around in the sense of various things calling out to us and grabbing our attention away from us. I think one of the other things that makes me question whether or not it's a faculty is the social nature of attention. Like mm-hmm. very often what catches our attention is other people's attention. Like I think the classic example of this is walking down the street and noticing other people looking up. Mm. It's hard not to look up as well when a group of people stop and start looking up or looking in a certain direction. It's hard not to notice other people's attention. And that makes it me think that it's not quite an individual faculty. It's a social relation that often we are paying attention to other people's attention. And this happens when we're out in social spaces and we notice what other people are looking at, but it also happens and gets sort of like mechanized in the way in which a lot of social media tries to draw our attention to things by suggesting that this is what other people are paying attention to, right? Trending topics, etc. where sometimes we just want to know what other people are talking about. We're distracted mm. by other people's attention. There's an interesting tension there, though, because, well, I like your point about social media and the algorithm, especially as you just mentioned, the trending topics and, and so on, that that does have a social dimension 
dimension. But of course, I engage those in a kind of non-social way. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at my own phone. I'm looking at my own computer screen by myself. So there's a fundamentally also non-social element to social media grabbing our attention. Yeah, there's also all of the tricks of the social media trade where we now know that you know tremendous amounts of research have been done on exactly what kind of notification sounds will capture right. our attention, mm. exactly what kind of colors in advertisements, for example, will capture our attention. So I do agree with Rick there that there is an involuntary dimension to our attention being captured against our will or mm. independent of our will, we might say. But I do think that Jason's right, that even that those things capture our attention is because of a social world that we've built in which certain sounds indicate certain things, certain colors indicate certain things. Just like to go back to your bird example, I mean, I do think there's a sense in which you've built a world, a meaningful world for yourself in which birds are something to notice. Whereas, you know, other things are not. For example, I imagine when you're walking down the sidewalk, you don't notice every ant that crawls by. <laughs> and there are ways in which that could be changed, social interactions that could change that. For example, if we all shared a suspicion that stepping on a crack actually did break your mother's back, we would notice cracks on the sidewalk. They would capture our attention more than other things. It's a part of a socially built meaningful world that certain things can capture our attention and other things cannot. As you were saying that, I was thinking about a social world in which we all considered ants to be cute. And then <laughs> yeah. certainly we would stop and look, oh, look at that one. He's, his head is so cute. Right. I mean, I think that right. drives a point home for me is like, if you ever go walk around with someone who has very different interests than you or someone who like might notice advertisements or walk around with a small child for whom like a fire truck is fascinating. You know, you, you, sometimes you can be out in the world with someone who is paying attention, but paying attention to very different things. Or to go back what I was saying at the beginning, you know, walk around with a dog and you realize that two of you are in totally different worlds in terms of attention. Mm -hmm. You know, you're in a visual world checking out the little free library and your dog is in a scent world checking out, you know, what other dogs have done in that area before. They're, the two of you have very different things that elicit your attention. And then there's the super creepy thing that my cats do, which is just, you know, to kind of stare at a blank <laughs> space on the wall. Like, like, and I'm like, I don't know what you're paying attention to. There's, I'm assuming right. there's a ghost there, but but that then captures your attention, right? Yeah, that of course. You yeah. want to find out what's capturing their attention, and so that's a social dimension that is across species. A social yeah. dimension. I mean, I have the same thing with birds. We we have a bird feeder in the front of our house, and it's always filled with birds. And when it's not filled with birds, then I start looking. Is there a dog coming? Is there a cat around? Is there, you know, a mm -hmm. possum, whatever, to find out what made them fly away and, you know, what captured their attention. And often it, it takes a couple of minutes, you know, they fly away and a few minutes later, a dog walks by. And that's, again, a world I don't live in, but it captures my attention because they're paying attention. I want to get back to this question that Jason asked about whether or not attention is a finite resource, because we all know that there have been so many articles written in the last few years about, for example, not allowing electronics in the classroom because students can't multitask or they don't retain information well enough or more or less it divvies up their 
attention to such a degree that they're not actually paying attention to anything. I'm not entirely sure I buy that argument. I know that as electronics have become more a part of our attention capturing world, that I feel like I have gotten much better at multitasking and that I can, I very frequently will be behind three screens, you know, a television on and a laptop in front of me and my phone in my hand. And I do feel like I can pay attention to all of them, not in the same way that I could pay attention, for example, to a chess game or to a complicated conversation, but I'm not incapable of paying attention to all of them. And I do think that we can get better at having our attention divided. So I'm just wondering if you guys are kind of buying this argument that, you know, we have to pay exclusive attention to things to actually be paying attention to them. I think studies are starting to show that multitasking is something we cannot do. But I think one of the things these studies don't take into consideration is precisely what you were just saying, Lee, namely that I might say, this is only deserving of a little bit of attention, and I could take the rest of my attention and apply it to the second thing. And if I reduce the amount I pay to both of those, then I have a little bit left to apply to a third screen. There's a way there in which the choice is not, I'm going to pay attention to these three things, but the choice is rather these three things don't need the kind of attention that, as you put it, Lee, a chess game needs or, you know, a philosophy lecture needs or something like that. I'm wondering if it might make more sense to talk about attention, not in terms of the amount of attention, but the intensity mm. of attention. So, for example, if I were hanging off a cliff for my life, that would literally be the only thing I could pay attention to. <laughs> right. The intensity of that attention would not allow me to, you know, check my social media on my phone or plan for tomorrow's meals, you know. But that's about the intensity of the attention. And that's why I think, well, when I use this example of being behind three screens, they each require a different intensity of attention. I mean, in many, mm. most of the time, when I have the television on and I'm doing other things, the television is just sort of occupying my face. I'm not really paying attention to it. I can adjust the intensity if you know something captures my attention or if I want to follow something, but I can do other things that require more intense attention at the same time. Right. Lee, I'm pretty sure that even if you were hanging off a cliff, you would still be looking at TikTok. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a fact. <laughs> True fact. Yeah, I find myself having to constantly adjust my level of attention. Like, I'm the kind of person who will turn off music while parallel parking mm -hmm. because I don't want anything else in that moment. Or I'll turn off music when I get into very difficult traffic. I'll just mm -hmm. want to pay attention to that situation. But other situations, I almost need something to make a boring activity bearable. Yeah. Like a while ago, I had to stack a cord of wood and I put on some of this podcast, actually, and <laughs> it made the whole thing, you know, I didn't even notice what I was doing because what I was doing was so rote and repetitive. Uh, I didn't even notice it and how, or how long it took until I realized I had listened to like two hours worth of podcasts and I was 
was, you know, I was done. So mm-hmm. sometimes mm-hmm. I need to distract myself from what I'm doing to make what I'm doing even doable. Sometimes I need to turn everything else off and be able to focus. And I find it difficult to go from the day-to-day sort of like multi-screen level of awareness where I'm constantly paying attention to several things to getting into a moment where I'm really trying to focus. It takes a while to adjust the level of my attention. And when I first sit down to like read a book, which is very different than a screen, there's always a moment where my brain is still kind of zigzagging between things. And it takes a bit for me to cultivate a more intense level of attention. But this is a different take then on the question about is attention a resource? And if so, is it a limited one or not? Because there's a way in which if it's a resource and it's limited, that means I might pay too much and I have less left to give. In other words, I wonder, and you know, you hear old people complaining about this and the media sometimes complaining about this, that, you know, the kids these days, they no longer are able to pay attention as Mm -hmm. if either they haven't developed that muscle, right? It has a kind of muscle analogy there. They haven't developed the muscle enough or they've overstrained it and therefore they can't use that muscle when they need it. I find myself these days less able to pay attention even when I need it and having to do all sorts of things in order to corral my attention way more than I used to. Mm -hmm. Just to give an example, in the coming term, I'm teaching a graduate seminar on Descartes' meditations. And to sit down and go through Descartes' second meditation and follow the argument and, you know, find all the nuances and so on, I need to kind of trick myself into paying attention. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know, maybe this is only anecdotal, but I feel like that has developed more recently, and I used to be able to pay more attention more easily. If I could just add another twist here, because I think that we're talking about attention, whether or not it's an activity or a faculty or a resource, as something that helps us get things done, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to remember also that sometimes attention can prevent us from getting things done. So for example, there are things that the more you pay attention to them, the more incapable you are of doing the thing that you want to do. A lot of people talk about this with athletes being in the zone, right? Right. Like if you're shooting a free throw, it needs to be so rote, so practiced that you don't pay attention to it. Or a pitcher in baseball, the more they pay attention to what they're doing, the more they get out of the zone and are incapable of doing this thing that that they really need to do without paying attention to it. So attention is also a very weird thing because we think about it in terms of accomplishing tasks or enabling us to accomplish tasks, but often it can impede us from accomplishing tasks. Mm Yeah, I think about that when I play tennis. When you learn, the instructor is constantly saying, okay, small steps, turn, racket back, follow through. When I'm actually playing tennis, if that if I'm focusing on that, I'm going to miss the ball every single time. Mm-hmm. Right, right. I was just thinking about playing guitar. Like yeah. If I had to think where every single finger goes, I, mean, I would never be able to play. I get confused when I watch a cable news channel like CNN or MSNBC because – 
their screen these days is now filled with all sorts of flashing bits and scrolling things and talking faces. And then they put what used to be a lower third, but now it's more like a lower eighth, you know, the person's Mm -hmm. title or whatever. And sometimes I just look at the screen and I wonder like, what do they want me to pay attention to? Or is the point they don't want me to pay attention to any of this? Sometimes when I focus on everything that's going on, I get really confused and a little exasperated. Hey, listeners, we've got three quick asks from your hosts here at Hotel Bar Sessions. First, if you haven't done so already, Make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast on whatever platform that you listen to podcasts. Second, hop on over to Twitter and make sure that you followed Hotel Bar Podcast there. We're at Hotel Bar Podcast, and you can find the Twitter handles of all three co-hosts in the bio there. And third, and probably most importantly, we would really appreciate it if you could recommend us to your friends and share our podcast posts on your social media. One of the things underlying a lot of the recent interest and attention is the idea that there's been a profound transformation of the nature of attention because there are just so many things to pay attention to. For a long time, but even within our memory, I mean, I remember an age in which there were three channels to watch and there was nothing on TV (laughs) when there was a scarcity of things to pay attention to. And now it's the reverse, right? There's scarcity of attention and there are way too many things to pay attention to. Two, there are too many television stations, there are too many websites, podcasts, etc. And so this transformation means that attention has become the scarce resource, not things to pay attention to. And so I'm wondering, and this is why people talk about this idea that we're living in an economics of attention, right? That there are ways in which attention is not only solicited, but also measured, clicks and so on, that there are websites very much trying to get and keep our attention, right? So many of social media, their basic idea is they want to keep you there as long as possible, keep you active and engaged because your activity drives up revenue based on advertisements or whatever else. And so I guess I'm wondering, what do we think about The fact that we are living in an age in which attention has become scarce, there are more demands on our attention than we could possibly pay attention to, and that those demands drive both revenue and also cultivate certain types of behaviors of doom scrolling or whatever else the case may be. You know, when we decided to do this topic, I was really hoping that we could talk about this really great book by Tim Wu called The Attention Merchants. And basically in that book, he goes back to early newspapers and traces the development of what he calls attention merchants, by which he means media that are not trying to sell you anything, but are simply trying to capture your attention so that other people can sell you things. Mm -hmm. And he, of course, puts all of social media into this category of attention merchants. But he basically traces this history and ends up in an epilogue that he actually added a few years after the book was published, saying that Donald Trump was the first attention merchant president, Mm -hmm. that there was really no substance to him He was just simply capturing the attention so that other people behind him could sell the public certain things. I think what's really interesting about Tim Wu's argument is it makes very clear that attention merchants, which are the primary capturers of our attention today, I think, that attention merchants are themselves primarily interested in distracting us from 
the things that are not profitable to them, to just state it plainly. So why do we need to look at our phones every few minutes? Why do we need a new breaking salacious story every second? Because if we didn't have all those things capturing our attention and distracting us from our actual alienated, (laughs) belabored, sick, poor, and demoralized lives, that we would be paying attention to the revolution. (laughs) I mean, just to (laughs) state it quite plainly. So I do think that it is important here when we're talking about the economics of attention to understand that the economics of attention capture is really about distracting us from something much larger. Mm -hmm. And one of the interesting things about Trump on that level is that I feel like Trump has borrowed his techniques from reality TV where he's come from. And one of the things that reality TV does, which I think is interesting, is it always promises you that in the next moment, something really big is about to happen. But it always Mm -hmm. fails to deliver on that promise. It'll cut and edit video to make it seem like there's some big confrontation happening on The Bachelor. It'll turn out it's not a big confrontation. And the blood you saw was someone slipped by the pool and not a big (laughs) deal. But the weird thing about that is that the audience for these shows doesn't say, oh, this is all a lie. They just wait for the next thing. The provocation and disappointment follow each other so closely that it doesn't really matter that there's nothing because the nothing just sets you up for the next distraction, right? There's always another big announcement. It doesn't really matter. A big announcement turned out to be, you know, Trump NFT trading cards because there'll be another announcement tomorrow that'll be just as big. And so the constant state of anticipating the next big thing doesn't lead to any eventual disappointment it leads to just further anticipation of the next even bigger thing. Yeah, and we get really habituated into that demeanor very easily. I remember shortly after the election of Biden thinking for those couple of weeks – how strange is it to not have a Trump story (laughs) every day? I was so used to that stimulus response Mm -hmm. mechanism that I noticed that this attention that I had habituated myself to attend to this particular thing literally every day, often multiple times a day, was now just being unused. Yeah. And as you both were talking about distraction, I started thinking that we need to think about distraction literally. So we're drawn away. Distraction is not a not paying attention. Rather, it's a paying attention to something else. And so those merchants of attention are at the same time merchants of distraction because they need to draw our attention away from what our attention might already be focused on. As you put it, Lee, and I think I agree with you, the kind of misery of our everyday lives under capitalism as it operates today, our attention is drawn away from that to this never happening huge event on The Bachelor that is finally going to satisfy and my life will no longer be miserable. Then we become habituated into not wanting the resolution of that, but wanting to be kept in this constant state of expectation. The next tweet is going to be the best one. The next episode is going to solve everything. The next news story is going to now finally explain this to me without 18 chirons, without some stupid talking head and shouting at each other. And it never happens. And it's because 
we're in this habituation of expectation that our attention can really easily be drawn away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is not just an economic strategy. This is a long-time, well-worn political strategy, you know, capturing your attention in order to distract you from something else, right? This is what weapons of mass destruction was. This has always been a strategy of diverting people's attention away from the things that might not be in the interest of the power. Yeah, and I think following up on that, the issue of abortion, the issue of gay marriage, the issue of gender and Mm non-binary and trans people, the issue of immigration and the border, all of this is a distraction that keeps people from paying attention to what actually affects their lives in very real ways. Yeah. But I think one of the things that comes up in Yves Sutan's book, The Ecology of Attention, he talks about what many people call the vector class, the class of people who are industries that try to capture attention. And he talks about two strategies for capturing of attention. One is owning the interface, right? The way in which like Google, Twitter, they all want to be the way you access news and so on, right? Twitter wants to be the place you look to see what's going on with something. And that's one strategy of capturing attention. It's been very effective, right? Because the internet, I think, has, has changed a lot in recent years. It's less the sort of people just going to random websites. It's a lot of it is filtered through social media as being the first place of interaction and then maybe leaving to go to something else. But the other strategy he talks about for capturing attention is not so much on the form of attention, but on capturing and owning content. And so what some people refer to that we're living in an age of culture, the age of intellectual property in culture, in the sense that if you look at what Disney has done, is that they buy up Marvel, they buy up the Muppets, they buy up things that people have paid attention to in the past to use those to create new products, right? And so mm-hmm. it bothers me that people talk about remakes and reboots as Hollywood being out of ideas. It's not out of ideas. There are tons of great, interesting ideas out there, but those ideas don't have the built-in attention already in them, right? When you remake something or when you make a sequel or you take the latest Disney example where they are making their own cartoons into live-action movies now, what they are banking on is the fact that people have memory of the cartoon and that they want to see or bring their children to see the new movie in this way in which everything that people have seen and enjoyed in the past becomes a kind of storehouse of things to pay attention to that can then be utilized in the present. One of the things I think is very troubling about that as a model of cultural production is it is entirely oriented towards the past, right? Any new thing Mm -hmm. is not going to have that bankability built into it. I mean, as someone in Generation X, I almost want to apologize to younger generations. Like, I'm sorry that you're still watching the movies, (laughs) sequels and remakes of the movies I grew up in. I didn't want (laughs) to do this to you. But somehow that was the last era in which – Hollywood was taking risks, so I'm sorry that there's a new Indiana Jones movie coming out. I'm sorry that my whole generation has been turned into sort of a storehouse of intellectual property and that future generations somehow are doomed to repeat my childhood, which I don't really want them to have to do. I want them to have their own childhoods, but unfortunately, my childhood was the last childhood in which (laughs) new objects of attention are being created. And we went outside and played, damn it! (laughs) Yes. It's interesting, though, because, Jason, it feels to me like, especially your example of Disney doing now these live action remakes of what were animated films in the past, is that there's an attempt at what I might call pre that is, they're producing these 
first, as you say, kind of on the basis of a past, and therefore they're turning on a kind of nostalgia, but a nostalgia that today's viewers actually don't have because they weren't alive during, you know, the first Beauty and the Beast or the first Star Wars. So it's a kind of pre-stalgia that I'm now going to manufacture a nostalgia for you by remaking intellectual property that, in the case of Indiana Jones, let's face it, with that Crystal Skull movie, that shit exhausted itself right there. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, just to get back to something that Jason said earlier, a lot of this has to do with just the amount of things that have to be out there all the time capturing our attention. There's a necessity to just produce volumes and volumes and volumes of content. And that really brings to mind how difficult and how infrequent it is that you're just bored, right? Mm-hmm. That I mean, it's actually really hard to be mm-hmm. bored, actually bored, like have nothing to pay attention to. And I wanted to tell you guys this story that a friend of mine who used to teach philosophy at University of Memphis, his name is Amit Sin, so shout out to you, Amit. He used to say that if he could, that he would go in on the first day and tell everyone you have an A right? You have to be here every day and you have to do the work, you know, and I'll grade it, but you're going to get an A if you are here every day and you just do the work. And he said, for some of you, you're going to say, oh, this is great. You know, this is easy. All I have to do is show up and do the work and I don't even have to do it well. He's like, but for some of you, you're going to find this very boring. And some of you still won't even do Mm. that. You won't come or you won't do the work. But if you can just make yourself do it, you'll still get an A and maybe you'll have some time to sit there and think about (laughs) why you're bored and why you're here, why you're in college, if this is boring to you, if you can't find anything interesting in this, you know, and I sometimes borrow a part of this and I'll say to my students at the beginning of every semester, look, I'm going to make it as easy as possible for you to do well in this class. I'm going to make every effort I can to make you want to be here, you know, make this interesting, you know, to use the language we've been using, capture your attention. But if you're here and you can't find anything interesting, then you really need to think about your boredom. Like, why are you in college if you can't find anything interesting in a class like this? Because I know this is an interesting (laughs) class. I teach medieval philosophy a lot for our undergraduate majors, and I used to teach a selection of texts by Duns Scotus, who is one of the most complicated philosophers, both in terms of his writing and also just conceptually and in terms of his argumentation. And one day I come into class and the students are like, this text is awful. And I'm like, what's wrong with it? And they said, well, it's not relatable. And I stopped for a second and I thought about it and I said, you know what? Did you ever consider that you're not relatable and that's why the text is not relating to you? Because a relation is a two-way operation. And so maybe you should make yourself relatable and open yourself to the text. And I think that issue of relatability really does mean it has the ability to capture my attention. And if it doesn't have the ability to capture my attention, then it's not relatable. Mm -hmm. But there again, notice both with your example, Lee, and with my example, the reflex is to put the blame on the thing. It's boring. It's not Mm -hmm. capturing my attention and not to put the blame on me. Like, why am I not engaged with this? Why is this not capturing my attention? And what maybe could I do in order to put myself in a position where this does speak to me? It does capture my attention. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of the flip side of your bird example earlier. We were sort of crediting the bird. 
birds right. with capturing your attention, but it's just as much about you as right. it is about the birds. Yeah. When I was growing up, if I told my parents I was bored, they would really pretty much say, that's on you. You got toys, you got games, you got yeah. you know art supplies, like there's outside. That's really on you. We're not here to entertain you. And if you're bored, you got to ask yourself the question, why are you bored? It's interesting to me that in both German and Polish, the word for being bored is a reflexive verb. I bore myself. And I think there's something right about hmm. that. Yeah, I would say that the most frequent environment in which I say to myself that I'm bored is meetings. Right. And I do think that that's because they're not capturing my attention in a way that I find meaningful. So just again, going back to the process of habituation, where you say these are meaningful captures of my attention, or these are meaningful things to pay attention to, and these aren't. Yeah, I'd rather be paying attention to something else. Right. <laughs> and, and in right. case of meetings, right. I'd rather be paying attention to almost <laughs> anything else. Anything else. <laughs> yeah, right. Jason, just a bit ago, Lee mentioned the ways in which attention functions politically. And I'm wondering whether you think that rather than focus on the economics of attention, or in addition to focusing on the economics of attention, we should also focus on the politics of attention. And then how does the politics of attention work? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, one of the things that comes up in Zeynep Tufekci's book, Twitter and Tear Gas, and other things she's written is this idea that the old paradigm we used to talk about politics and information was one of censorship. And that one is completely in some sense, defunct. The ability for governments or other institutions to control what gets out there is kind of impossible given the channels of information. And the new strategy is not one of censorship, but one of managing attention and distraction. This sounds like a shift from what Foucault calls biopower to something that we might call infopower, that it's the problem of state apparatuses and government apparatuses to regulate, bring to the fore, discipline, control, and otherwise consider attention and where our attention is being focused. I like that contrast between biopower and infopower because I suppose one of the things that I failed to mention earlier when we were talking about distraction that I do want to mention now is that there are certain things that you cannot be distracted from. You can't be distracted from hunger. You can't be distracted from exhaustion. You can't be distracted from sickness. You can't be distracted from having to pay the utility bill or the rent. Earlier, I was trying to say all of these other forms of mm -hmm. economic and political attention capture are trying to distract us from those things that are nevertheless ever-present pressing attention captures for us. But because we feel like we have to be paying attention to all of these other things and in, in many ways do divert our attention even from those things which we can't completely be distracted from, like that we're hungry and we're tired and we're sick and we're poor, we get in this tension, right? We believe that there must be some you know, nefarious group of powerful and wealthy people sitting in a back room doing this, but it's much more mundane than that. Mm -hmm. mm. And there's a way in which the powerful group of people sitting in the back room 
is a way of trying to make sense out of something that doesn't otherwise make sense. And so while I can't be distracted from my hunger, I can be distracted from what I know to be the cause of my hunger to now mm -hmm. know something else to be the cause of my hunger, namely mm -hmm. that queers are getting married. <laughs> right. And you can be distracted from your comfort and your security. I mean, one of the things I think is mm -hmm. interesting is that there's been a lot of studies talking about this in recent years, and that's not the first time this has happened, but like narratives around increased crime, you know, which mm -hmm. are entirely to some extent fabricated. And they're fabricated at an interesting intersection between on the one hand, the media's old adage that if it bleeds, it leads, that crime stories get attention. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, then there's also the political dimension of it that the focus on crime does distract people from other sorts of problems they might be confronting. Um, but it also distracts people, and I said distract from your own comfort. Like it's amazing that you see this constantly that people completely overestimate how much crime is in the area they live in. That's because they are paying attention to the way it's presented on television or on the internet and not what they experience in their day-to-day -day life walking down the street unmolested and sitting in their home safely and so on. But you, you can distract people from comfort to make them think that they are threatened even when they're not. So I do think going back to what you're saying, you can't distract people from things that are very immediate, but people who have no immediate pressing hunger or cold or lack of security can be distracted into, in some sense, forgetting how safe and comfortable they are and believing themselves to be threatened when they are not. It's always been interesting to me that when Trump would talk about the American carnage that's going on. I think Chicago was pretty much his ground zero for that. Mm -hmm. And it boggles my mind to think about why someone in Sioux City gives a crap about the violence that's going on in Chicago, because it has absolutely nothing to do with them. And if they would actually pay the right attention to what's going on in Chicago, they would see that the violence is actually incredibly racially and economically distributed in ways that, you know, once you find it out, you're like, yeah, of course, I could have told you that in advance, that there's more violence in poor communities and in communities where they're predominantly white and wealthy, there's very little crime. But the ability to distract people out of their safety in Sioux City and make them vote for certain politicians based on the understanding that there's violent crime in Chicago is a remarkable capture of attention. Yeah, it makes me think of in the German ideology, Marx famously says, you know, the ruling ideas are the ideas of the ruling class. But he also says in that text that life determines consciousness, consciousness doesn't determine life, which would suggest that people's life experiences should shape their understanding. So it's always a riddle there how it is that people who have one set of experiences can take on the ideology of a different class. And I think that what solves that riddle to some extent is precisely the politics of attention and distraction. You get people to forget the immediate conditions of their own lives and to think about something else. Like as you said, the obsession people have in rural areas about urban crime in cities that they don't live in and never intend to visit, and this complete overestimation of that urban crime as being part of the way they make sense of the world where you have people, you know, bragging about what was it, the guy who um 
the hillbilly elegy guy who's now an elected representative from the great state of Ohio. Vance. Elected senator. Said, yes. Right. Tweeted at one point that he was going to New York City and he knew it was like The Walking Dead there. But was it like The Walking Dead season two or season four? I don't know what that means. I never really watched The Walking Dead. <laughs> but, you know, this inflated idea of how dangerous cities are by people who make it their point not to go there. And this ability to forget about what you immediately experience and have the mediated experience of television, internet, etc. shape your worldview is, I think, one of the powerful elements of this politics of distraction or attention. So you begin to live in a very different world than the world you experience because in some sense, the world you experience is like the room you're sitting in and you're watching the birds flutter by and you're having that shape your sense of the world because the birds are so much more interesting, engaging, frightening, whatever. All of this proliferation of content is drawing us away from what actually is impoverishing me, what actually is making me suffer in my day-to-day life, the fact that I don't have health care, the fact that I am poor and that there are no good union jobs that can pay me a living wage. And so I have to work at Walmart and be a gig worker for both Uber and for DoorDash <laughs> and for TaskRabbit and, and so on. This proliferation of content is at the same time a proliferation of devices of distraction. Mm -hmm. But in order to be successful, it has to, as you just said, Jason, it has to stimulate us. Mm -hmm. It has to be, it seems, ever more extreme. And I think Trump was certainly a master at this, that if he got involved in a controversy, Almost always his solution was to create another controversy. Right. And so if there's always a controversy around the corner, none of them ever stick, actually. Mm-hmm. And you know, the ironic thing about all of this is that in addition to the however many op-eds that people are writing every week about how we can't pay attention to anything or how we're too easily distracted – This has also generated an entire boutique industry of mindfulness Mm. and intentionality and sort of how to be more intentional about your attention or intentional about your distraction. And, you know, there is a part of me that thinks, yeah, that, you know, that is the moral of this story. We need to be more intentional about our attention and intentional about our distraction. But when that itself, that whole narrative becomes yet another Mm. thing to distract us, then it just seems like, that seems like another Dutch book. Right. Right. And I think that one of the things that's missing in this discussion is because those discussions about mindfulness, et cetera, they go back to the idea of attention being some kind of individual faculty of something you possess and you have control over rather than see it as relational and shaped by the world. I mean, Yves Citon puts forth this idea that there's an ecology of attention rather than an economy. Mm-hmm. And I think we can see that as we were talking about earlier in terms of the way the culture industry works. There's a certain like environment of attention, as you were saying, Lee, where like only the big lumbering remakes of already existing properties can survive, right? A small film with none of those connections, none of those associations would just and they have repeatedly been dying out there. They go out and they just die. The environment only is conducive to a certain kind of sort of 
uh, animal of the big remake blockbuster surviving in the same way that in the media landscape, you could say that the ecology is one that is driven by these sort of Trumpian constant invocation of scandal or issue that constantly is a moving target. And I think that one of the things we have to think about is the ability to cultivate not just other practices of attention, but other spaces of attention. And I think we yeah. see this. I mean, we know because we're, we're teachers that the classroom is a kind of space of a certain kind of attention. There's a certain thing that happens when you're in a room and a bunch of people are all trying to think about the same thing, think about the same text. There's a way in which that attention and its trans individual nature gets ramped up. Like suddenly you're like thinking thoughts you hadn't thought before when you're reading this book by yourself because other people's attention is drawing your attention. You know, what we lack is not the ability to be mindful or whatever, but the ability to create different spaces of attention and different practice related to those spaces. I mean, I think one of the strange things about the internet is the internet can both be a site of constant distraction where you're like, oh, what's this thing? What's this thing? What's this thing? As new things are constantly thrown at you. But it also can be the place where it sometimes can be really enjoyable to go into a, an incredible deep dive of like, I want to know more mm-hmm. about this. You're driving the focus. It's not the constant sort of solicitation of your focus. You're driving it and you can go deeper and deeper and think more about something. And it's interesting to me that the same technology can make possible both a constant distraction and a level of sustained attention that didn't really exist before it. Yeah, I do think one of the really positive things about the internet as the vehicle for most of our attention and distraction is that it has made it much more obvious that what we pay attention to and what we are distracted from is a social activity. It's a intersubjective activity. And it's funny that the sort of last stand against that was the mm-hmm. hipster, right? <laughs> who was the person who was like, I was paying attention to it when nobody was paying attention to it, right? Like I was paying attention to it before it was cool. And it was this kind of last stand of this character that you know, had full Mm -hmm. control of their attention and distraction. And, you know, now that's just a caricature. That's, you know, it's it's the butt of a joke. But now it's very hard to not see that everything that we pay attention to is part of a much larger social, economic, political web and that we're all interconnected and that to the extent that we're going to be mindful or intentional about the things that we pay attention to or the things that we're distracted by – that that involves a whole lot of other people, you know, who also have their own intentions and attentions and distractions. I once heard a lecture, I won't mention who because I'm about to throw this claim under the bus, but it was about the fact that in modern philosophy or among modern philosophers, they chose genres of writing that were well-established genres. So like Hume writes an essay concerning and so on, that the essay was an established genre that you need to know what it was. Why did Montaigne write these essays? What's the relationship between Hume's essay and the genre that Montaigne? And when Descartes writes the meditations, it's a similar thing because there are the meditations of Marcus Aurelius, for example. So I wanted to pull this out in preparing my class on Descartes' meditations And I had either never known or completely forgotten that Marcus Aurelius, first of all, wrote the text in Greek, 
And that there wasn't even a Greek word for meditation there, but it's rather something like writing to myself or writing for Hmm. myself. Then I got interested, like, why was this Roman emperor writing in Greek? And, you know, what was the whole point about that? And so that's the positive side that Jason was talking about that I got really interested then in the history of this text and what Marcus Aurelius was after in writing in Greek rather than in Latin. But it suddenly occurred to me that this initial claim that when Descartes is writing the meditations, we should look at meditations, what they are, by looking, for example, at Marcus Aurelius. Descartes certainly knew that Aurelius didn't call the text meditations, and even most of the Latin translations didn't use the word meditations. And I thought, this is a moment in which a kind of distraction has allowed someone to make a point that is actually more truthy than truthful. And, you know, it has the ring of truthiness about it, but it actually Mm -hmm. is not true. And there's a moment in which I felt the lack of a kind of old-fashioned scholarly ecology Mm -hmm. where people used to sit in a library surrounded by dusty books and really just focus in on something like What's the history of the word meditation? Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. Well, guys, it looks like our bartender is giving us last call and we've got to get out of here. I really appreciated paying attention to you guys in this conversation, but I was wondering if you had any last thoughts that you wanted to leave our listeners with. Toward the end of this, I started worrying that some of us were on the verge of saying the kids these days can't pay attention. And the point is not that the kids don't know how to pay attention, but rather their attention is structured in advance by merchants of attention and by the politics of distraction. So we're talking about a certain social and political moment that we find ourselves in right now. Yeah, I agree with that. I wouldn't say anything about attention that I wouldn't apply to me. I can't pay (laughs) attention these days. And sometimes you just have to go with it. You know, I used to be someone who would bring like Hegel or Deleuze to read on a plane and that was insane because there's just I couldn't focus there. So now I bring science fiction novels to read on the plane and I'm much happier because I understand yeah. <laughs> that that space is conducive to a certain type of attention and not very conducive to another type of attention. So sometimes you have to go with it. Other times it becomes a matter, I think, of being able to take control of the conditions of your own attention to mm. focus on what you want to focus on and not let your focus be dictated by the world around you. And so sometimes that means not just the mindfulness stuff, but the recognition that attention is relational, 
attention has its own infrastructures and structures that it relies upon and to try and cultivate and find the kind of relations and structures that can be conducive to being able to pursue your own attention because none of us want to be boring. (laughs) And the way you become boring is by paying attention to what everyone else is paying attention to because Mm. then you find yourself trying to – as. We often do on places like Twitter, trying to come up with the most clever dunk on Musk when everyone else is dunking on Elon Musk that day. And it's a futile thing. It's better to pay attention to something else that day and maybe have something truly interesting to say. Well, listeners, we really do appreciate you giving us your attention for this last hour or distraction, whichever it was. And we wanted to say again that if you want to help support this podcast, you can do that by visiting our Patreon page. That's patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions. Guys, I hope one of you have called a cab. Oh. Wait, why did I say a cab? Nobody calls a cab. (laughs) Guys, I hope one of you are sober enough to drive. I'm watching YouTube videos. I'm watching YouTube videos while driving. I hope that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's cool with me. I'm on TikTok as usual. Bye. All right. I'll catch you guys next time. (laughs) 